let's uh, move on now into a time of study. We've, over the last six weeks or so, gone through John's first letter. And there's been much in there to encourage us, to edify us, to tell us that we can know certain things, that we can know that we have eternal life uh, and so on. And, and John writes with this real passion, just wanting to communicate the understanding that he had from spending that time with Jesus to us that we can be confident in our belief. Of course, John was writing at a time when there were heresies springing up left, right and center. There were erroneous doctrines around. There were people from within the church that were trying to lead others astray and after themselves. And it's against that backdrop that John writes not just the first of his letters, but all three letters, um, uh, an encouragement to the body, but they're also a letter of warning to remind us that we can't be complacent and we have to be very discerning as believers. And I guess, you know, some 2000 years later, nothing's changed. We have to be just as discerning today, just as aware that there is deception. There are people out there that would come and pervert the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel. They'll try and add certain things to us that we need to accomplish or do, um, apparently, in order to be right with God. Of course, it's it's nonsense. You know, there is this, this beautiful childlike simplicity with the gospel that we simply believe by faith, and that we then receive this incredible gift of salvation. Uh, and this is what John has been reminding us. And we're going to go into this second letter this morning. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, Second John. It's only a short little letter. Uh, we've got just 13 verses in this letter. Um, but let's go through and uh, dig into it. Let's just again bow our hearts uh, and ask the Lord just to open our understanding as we look at these scriptures this morning. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, not only that you give us instructions as to how to live righteously, but, Lord, also to warn us that there is great deception that will pull us away, that, Father, we are even now in the midst of a spiritual battle. There is, Lord, those who would uh, seek to uh, undermine your word, to bring in destructive heresies, denying Jesus, denying that he has accomplished and completed the work on the cross. And so, Father, we just thank you that you love us this much, that you've given us so much information. So help us, Lord, just to understand these things this morning, that we would grow together in knowledge and in grace as we get ready for the return of our Lord and Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Second John. John's second epistle, as I said, is going to emphasize the themes and the things that we've already uh, looked at very much going through First um, John, uh, i.e. that the Father and the Son are one. That will come out in verse 3. The importance of walking in the truth. Uh, once again, John emphasized this in his first epistle. The fact that we must love one another. This is one of the foundational um, points of our faith as Christians, that our love for God is demonstrated on our love for each other, that our willingness to obey and keep God's commandments is also evidenced by the love we show for one another. And we'll talk more as we go through this morning on these things. But John also reminds us that deceivers have gone out into the world. So we need to be very cautious, discerning, uh, we need to have our um, hearts into God's word so that we can learn from the uh, the things that we've been taught as to the deceptions that will come and how we need to respond. 
We're also reminded that those who habitually sin are not obviously abiding in Christ and have not God. Uh, that's what John tells us. You know, sometimes we're very cautious. We don't like to say that somebody's not a, a believer. We are away from the, the side of being judgmental on those issues. And of course, we don't know individuals' hearts. And yet in Scripture, we're given a number of tests as to whether somebody is genuine in their profession of faith. Um, Jesus spoke of uh, the fruit of an individual identifying them, that a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit but a bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Uh, and Jesus said it's by people's fruits, the fruit they produce in their lives that will know them. And John also reminds us that there are some very obvious signs that somebody is born again and part of God's family. And there's clearly some signs that would indicate that an individual is not. John has already labored that point in the first letter and we'll touch on it again in this one. Also, we find that if you abide in the word You'll have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. You know, it's such an important thing. You know, you go back to Matthew 13 and you look at the parables there. Every one of the soils that are mentioned that Jesus brings to our attention uh, and the, the seed that's planted, every time the real key is people's response to the word of God. You know, either the, the word takes root in their lives or it doesn't. Either the word is snatched away or it starts to grow. So it's an individual's response to God's word that really is such a pivotal and vital um, thing to understand. And then finally, John will conclude the letter as he opened the first epistle by saying that our joy can be full. And how can it be full? I mean, isn't that something in this day and age that we all crave for to have our, have to have fullness of joy? Well, you know, we can. It doesn't mean happiness. We've said this before. The happiness is transient. Happiness is subject to our emotions and the circumstances and how we feel and, you know, whether we got an early night or what we had for tea or, you know, lots of things can factor uh, around the, 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 what kind of, uh, um, response we have or how happy we feel but joy is not in that league joy is something above that something that is underneath our emotions and our feelings uh, and it's such a higher thing to attain and it can only be found of course through jesus and through fellowship and this is the point that john made in the first epistle and we're going to see it again this time that that fellowship that we have with the father and the son and that therefore will lead to the fellowship we have with each other is what brings us this real joy. Now, once again, and we'll mention this uh, no doubt throughout, but the fellowship we have with each other is based upon the love that we have for God. If we love God and if we keep his commandments, well, then naturally we're going to have fellowship with each other. If we don't keep God's commandments, well, actually we'll find that we feel very awkward and uncomfortable around each other because of God's presence. When we meet together, there's naturally that conviction of sin. If there's things that we're allowing in our lives, and that's why this unity is so important that we maintain it. And we'll talk more as we go through this morning. So before we go into the first verse, let me just say uh, that there are many commentators, given what I've just said, that will tell you that Second John is really just a, a small repeat of First John. Now, I don't buy that because the Holy Spirit never repeats himself. You know, as we go through scripture, uh, we find that um, there isn't anything that is said uh, in scripture that there's a repetition. Even in uh, things like Psalm 119, where on the surface it may seem that there are 
um, themes and ideas that are repeated. Spurgeon made the comment in his study of Psalm 119 that the Lord never repeats himself. He adds to, he enhances, but it's never just a repetition, a vain repetition in that sense. Uh, and it's the same here that John in his second epistle isn't just writing the same thing he wrote the first one again. No, there's, there's some things that will come out of this. So I do reject that idea that this is simply just a, a rehash of some of the ideas. Certainly those ideas come out because it's consistent with the themes. Um, but there's another level to this altogether. So let's jump into the text uh, and see what the Lord has this morning. So verse one, the elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known thy truth. Now, the first thing we see John here referring to himself as the elder. Uh, John, we understand after his time on Patmos had returned to Ephesus and had pastored the church there. And both Timothy and John, by the way, uh, had a time pastoring the church at Ephesus. It was quite a, uh, a key place uh, for the early church. But John um, never seems to mention himself by name. You see that throughout his gospel. Uh, and here again, uh, he simply introduces himself as the elder. But now we immediately hear a kind of big question that's been debated for centuries because it says the elder unto. Now, this is the recipient and it says the elect lady. Now, this is something that's caused debate and um, controversy to a point, but nothing that's divided as such, but just different views and ideas. Now, who was John writing to? Well, from about the fourth century onwards, Jerome, uh, who you may uh, recognize that name from church history, he was the individual who translated the scriptures into the Latin of the day. It becomes known as the Latin Vulgate, Vulgate meaning just popular. Um, so it's a popular version of the Latin language, uh, translating from the Alexandrian manuscripts. We talked about that a little last week. Um, but Jerome uh, makes this suggestion, and many have, have done so since, that it's the church that is in view here, that John is simply using an idiom, um, that the lady is speaking of the church. Of course, it's not unusual in scripture to see the church referred to in that kind of term. We, of course, have Paul speaks about the bride of Christ, um, speaks about the, the church being the wife, that we are to be married to Jesus. And yet we have problems if we adopt that in this particular letter, because one of the things we come to see in this first verse alone and later on as well is that this elect lady has children. Well, you know, in what way can it be said that the church has children? The church doesn't have children. We don't have offspring. The church is the church. Uh, it actually creates a bit of a problem if you try and make that uh, shoehorn that idea uh, into this. We also find that this lady, who John refers to, also has a sister. Well, once again, how can the church be said to have a sister? Uh, there isn't a sister church. Um, so these ideas, although they've been popular through the ages, don't really seem to fit the context. Um, uh, John also says at the end of the, the letter that he intends to visit and speak face to face. So those all added up really, to me, dismiss that idea that John is simply using this elect lady as a way of referring to the church, particularly when we've already seen John refer to the church many times in the first epistle by speaking to brethren and beloved brethren and so on. So John has no problem in addressing the church, but I don't see, therefore, that it follows through in this letter that he's doing that. Uh, and of course, whilst there are lessons 
for the church in this letter, as there are in all scripture, it clearly seems to be addressed to an individual. Now, for that reason, others suggest that this was simply a prominent individual in the early church that John obviously knew, uh, whom we can't identify today. Um, there are some um, that look at the, le- the, the, the word in the Greek um, for lady, to the elect lady, um, and they suggest that the, the word that we've translated in the English as lady is actually a, a pronoun, it's a personal name, um, and a, the, it's a Celine or a Serene or something along those lines, uh, people have suggested. So they, they've come up with this idea that maybe that's the individual uh, in question, uh, and yet the, the word in the Greek is used elsewhere in the New Testament, um, speaking of a lady, an individual lady. So it doesn't seem to me, again, to imply that it's actually a name that we have in the text itself. Um, again, John says that all those who are of the truth know her. Now, that's quite an interesting statement because that precludes just a local individual that were known by the local church in question. It seems to have a broader scope. So we ask the question again, who was John writing to? Well, an overlooked possibility. And let me state this it is a possibility. So this isn't doctrine, but I think you'll see why uh, I'm going down this road uh, is that John was actually writing to Mary, the mother of Jesus. If you remember at the cross, John was entrusted with the care of Mary by Jesus. That's back in John 19, 26 and 27. We'll look at that scripture later. Also, Mary was, of course, respected and well known in the early church. Of course, she was. Everybody had heard of Mary. Everybody knew about Mary. And John says this elect lady is known and loved by all those. It's very emphatic again in the Greek that it's by all those who know the truth. In other words, all those who are born again. Well, you try and think of one lady that all believers know of. Uh, and I think you'll struggle to come up with anybody other than really Mary. There are a few other characters in the New Testament that maybe we could point to. But certainly Mary would be known by all believers and certainly loved by all believers. You know, Mary, we understand also, did end up at Ephesus. So there's a geographical link between John and Mary in this context as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier, John became the pastor at Ephesus. So um, let's just go on with the text because it says the elder uh, under to the elect lady. Now, again, of all women, Mary was elect, chosen specifically by God for a very specific task. The problem is that we are often conditioned in our thoughts about Mary by the heretical teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And so. Whilst the Roman Catholic Church overemphasize Mary uh, in so many ways, often we tend to underemphasize the importance that she paid in, played in God's plan. Mary was, of course, the mother of Jesus, of course, not the mother of God, which is the term the Catholics often use. But she was certainly from a physical perspective, the individual that gave birth to Jesus. Uh, we, we can't belittle or undermine how important that was, that God of all the individuals, of all the ladies that had been on the earth through history, chose at that time to bring Jesus into the world through Mary. It's just such an incredible position and privilege uh, and of all people to, to refer to somebody as being elect, then, then Mary certainly falls uh, into that category. Needs to say, of course, and we're, I'm sure um, 
very uh, aware of this fact that Mary was not sinless. That was a, a doctrine that was brought in by the Roman Catholic Church way, way, way down through the centuries. I think it was about 900 AD, if memory serves, um, that that idea that Mary was without sin. Um, it was introduced. Of course, that's not what scripture tells us. Back in Luke 1, 47, in the passage that often we speak of as the Magnificat, that great declaration as Mary's told that she's going to bring forth this child. She just speaks with uh, this overflowing of emotion and joy. Uh, and she says that my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She recognized that she needed a savior. That means she knew that she was a sinner. But again, then let's uh, make the point that she was chosen to bear the Messiah. Just one interesting aside, though, to mention, Jesus in the scriptures never calls Mary mother. OK, often uh, is referenced as woman. Uh, he speaks to her, but he never speaks to her as mother. Now, there are scriptures that speak of Mary as the mother of Jesus. And of course, from the, uh, the perspective that she gave birth, that's absolutely correct. But Jesus never uses that expression himself. Jesus never, ever calls Mary mother. And there's a very interest, interesting study uh, we can do around the reasons for that, which we won't go into this morning. Let's move on. The next thing we're told in this verse is uh, to the elect, uh, uh, the, sorry, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. So this again is very interesting because Jesus, we know from scripture, had four brothers and at least two sisters. In fact, we read in Mark 6 verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So this was those who were questioning the authority of Jesus. Um, but in the, the context, clearly, after Jesus had been born, Mary and Joseph had had normal, natural children um, that Mary had conceived through Joseph. Uh, and then that she had had additional children in the family. So, I mean, the, 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 no doubt the family house was somewhat crowded. Now, we've already looked a little while ago in our study through the book of James, uh, James, the author of the New Testament. James was one of the half brothers, as it were, of Jesus. They had the same mother uh, or were born from the, the same mother. Um, and James becomes a believer after the resurrection and ends up heading the church in Jerusalem. So the statement here to the elect lady and her children, and uh, it says, whom I love in the truth. Uh, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth. So the family clearly is known by the church. Uh, Jude also was one of the half brothers of Jesus in that sense. Uh, and he also becomes a believer. We're, we'll study in a few weeks time, the Lord willing, through Jude's letter. Uh, and Jude, interestingly enough, becomes a defender of the faith, very much as John is as well. John uh, here challenging the, the erroneous doctrines and so on, as we've mentioned. Uh, but Jude also takes up that baton and earnestly contends for the faith. And John makes that point here um, that the children of this lady, um, he says, whom I love in the truth, uh, and not I only, but also they that have known the truth. So there's an emphasis on here that her children have this love of the truth also. Again, I love in the truth. And, you know, truth occurs five times in the first four verses uh, of this letter. Uh, love, one of the key themes in First John, is also found four times here in 13 verses. 
Chuck Misler uh, actually suggests, just as an interesting aside, that the use of the term the truth here by John may actually be a veiled reference to Jesus himself, that he may be speaking of Jesus. And it certainly fits because we could say the elder unto the elect lady and her children whom I love in Jesus Christ. And not I only, but also all they that have known Jesus Christ. So it certainly fits if we apply that. And actually, when we go on to the next verse, it seems to amplify that idea. It says, for the truth's sake, which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. It personifies truth. Uh, well, what is the truth that dwells within us and shall be with us forever? Well, uh, a little study of John sixteen seventeen and so on will remind us that it's the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. And he dwells in us and shall be with us forever. Uh, that's in John's gospel. John very much aware of these ideas. And so it would seem that John is certainly using that uh, in the context here. And then John goes on and says, grace be with you. Mercy and peace from God, the father and from the Lord Jesus Christ the son of the father in truth and love. So as Paul does, John uses grace or praise rather for grace and mercy and peace. You know, it's so important. We need constant grace. Paul, if you remember, tells Timothy to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, we rely on that grace. We depend on that grace. Not only is it by grace that we are saved, it's by grace that we stand also. And we also need God's mercy, which we're told in scripture endures forever. You know, some modern translations and some of our worship songs that we sing speak about the love of God enduring forever. You know, and that's true. God's love does endure forever. But more often than not, if you go and look at the the root words behind where it's sometimes translated love, uh, more often than not in the King James, those words are translated mercy. And it is actually mercy that's in view. Why is it important that God's mercy endures forever? Well, because we have that assurance that God is never going to get to the stage where he gets fed up with us or gets tired of us or for some reason something happens and God says, right, that's enough. You know, it's not so much about his love, it's about his mercy. It's so important that we are recipients of that mercy and that mercy endures forever. So love, of course, is vitally important. God loved the whole world, though, and yet some of the world will end up going to hell for rejecting Jesus Christ. So love is very embracing. Mercy is very specific. And it is the those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus become the recipients of that mercy because of his love. If we have grace and mercy, we're going to have peace. Because if we understand the love that God had for us, the grace that God doing something that we could never have done, giving us something we didn't deserve. And we understand that mercy that has been shown. Well, if your heart's beating, then that's going to bring peace. Just to know the truth of those statements. Just want to go on to, to look at the rest of this uh, statement, though, in verse three, because it says, um, let me just read from the beginning of the verse. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God, the father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John uses this expression, which is the only time it's used in the New Testament. He says, the son of the father. Now, there's similar expressions used, but this is a very specific expression that John uses. The son of the father, and he says, in truth and love. 
Again, now this is interesting indeed, because if this really is addressed to Mary, which as we go through, I'll start to build the case. And I think you'll see why that seems such a plausible uh, understanding and explanation as to who the recipient was. It's such an interesting statement that John puts here, because many try to claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm sure you've heard people say that. Um, certainly other cults and isms uh, will say, oh, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. No, that's not true. Uh, Jesus, in many ways, at many times, stated that he was God. He referred to himself as the I am. In fact, in John's gospel alone, there are seven specific I am statements uh, where God or where Jesus makes that. But I am the way I am the truth. I am the life uh, to start for starters. If you remember in Gethsemane when the you know, the temple guard and the Romans come out to arrest Jesus um, Jesus asked the question whom seek ye and they say you know Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus response is I am now in a, our translations it says I am he now of course that was the implication but that, that word he is simply added um, by the translators what Jesus states is I am it is the voice of the burning bush, the voice of, of God, the God who was there from before time began. Uh, the I am that I am is the name that God gives to Moses. And Jesus states that he is I am. When Jesus states that in Gethsemane, you know what happens? All those soldiers and guards and uh, we estimate there could have been anything up to about 600 or so of them. They all go falling down, swords and shields and spears, you know, clattering and going everywhere. As Jesus declares he is God. Um, so uh, we have uh, lots of these uh, examples we could give from Scripture. Jesus certainly claimed to be God. Um, but here it's the statement that John is making that Jesus is the son of the father. He's the same substance of the father. He is, as it were, as Jesus said himself, I am the father are one. John had already uh, made this point back in First John that we were looking at last week. Uh, and of course, Mary was under no illusion who Jesus really was. You know, and this statement would be a real encouragement to Mary, because if you think about it, she'd endured years of sneers and whispering behind her back and comments being made that Jesus was an Ill illegitimate child. If we go to John chapter 8, we see there uh, this statement. This is the Pharisees challenging Jesus. Um, and Jesus said to them, you do the deeds of your father. And Jesus goes on to tell them a little bit about their parentage. Um, but they respond, then they, sorry, then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. So clearly a declaration as we've just been speaking. But notice the statement that they come back with Jesus and they say, we were not born of fornication. They're challenging the fact that this rumor had spread abroad that Jesus had been the result of an, uh, an illegitimate relationship or, or Jesus being born out of wedlock. Uh, that, of course, was the, the thing that was said. Now, we see a glimpse of this also in the Old Testament. In Psalm 69, we have this incredible psalm that seems to speak prophetically of Jesus's childhood. Now, we don't know much about Jesus's childhood uh, after the accounts regarding his birth and the Magi visiting when he'd have been anything up to about two years old. We have real silence until we get to about 12 when Jesus with the family goes and visits the, the temple. But we have this statement in Psalm 69, verse 10 onwards. It says, when I wept 
and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. It's, it's implying that others looked on and saw what was going on. They saw him doing these things and it was his reproach. People were mocking him. We'll see it goes on and says, I made sackcloth also my garment. I became a proverb to them. That, that means people were speaking about Jesus. They were laughing about him. He says, they that sit in the gate speak against me. And I was the song of the drunkards. The gate, of course, refers to the council. Typically, the, the gate of the city was where the leaders, the elders of the city would sit together. Uh, they would have their kind of council meetings and discuss what they needed to do for the city, you know, which potholes they were going to repair and whatever else they were doing with the city. Um, but as part of those conversations, those in the gate were speaking about Jesus. Those uh, presumably this would have been in Nazareth where Jesus would have been growing up. But Jesus was well known. The family were well known. But so was this rumor, this story that Jesus had been born out of wedlock. And Jesus goes on and says, I was the song of the drunkards. You know, people that were going to get drunk were then making songs up about Jesus. Now, just for a second, think what implication or what impact rather that would have had on Mary. You know, anybody that's a mother or even a father, but certainly for mothers to have somebody speaking ill of your children is painful and for Mary to be in this position seeing others joking and mocking and laughing about Jesus must have been a real real drain on her soul so again John makes his statement I believe to Mary that Jesus of course uh, is uh, uh, sorry mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ the Son of the Father so John's statement is in effect Jesus was the legitimate son of the Father and what an encouragement that would have been to Mary's ears to hear that she knew it of course but to hear someone again like John who she knew well uh, obviously they had this special um, relationship special bond through Jesus's words on the cross uh, it would have been a real blessing, no doubt. And notice again, it just ends in that statement, in truth and love. You know, this is how John is opening this letter. Um, you know, all that we do should be in truth and in love. You know, not only in love, but in truth also. And you can't really, from a Christian perspective, separate the truth the truth from the love. Um, you know, we are told by Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 15 that we're to speak the truth in love so it's no good having just love it's no good just speaking the truth these two have to come together in fact in john's um, gospel john 17 17 uh, jesus makes a statement that thy word is truth god's word is truth you know if we try to show love apart from god's word it's incomplete you know love must be in the context of god's word it must be in the context of truth and let me just add that this is never truer when then speaking to the unsaved. Let me show, just uh, explain what I mean by this, because, you know, we often say to people, well, God loves you. It's a statement that we often use. And yet there are many verses in scripture that would be uh, we'd be wise to take heed of. Uh, we're told that the wrath of God abides on them that believe not. And yet we go to the world and we say God loves them. And in one sense, of course, we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we can say that, but it's no good just showing them the love. We need to tell them the truth. We need to tell them how to be saved. So I encourage you, if you get in a conversation with somebody, don't just say, well, you know, God loves you. Tell them a little bit about Jesus. Tell them a little bit about salvation in his name. 
That's the truth. Because it's no good just wrapping it up and making people feel nice and warm and fuzzy that, oh, actually God loves me. Because all you do is create a false sense of security. It, that love, the sincerity that I'm not questioning is there, but that love needs to be wrapped up in that truth as well. You know, don't tell someone it will be okay. You know, regarding a particular situation, I'm sure we've all had it when a non-Christian would come to us uh, and they tell us of a, a problem or a challenge that we're going through, you know, and it's easy to say, uh, you know, it will be okay. You know, don't, don't worry. But no, that's an opportunity to preach the gospel. And then whether it works out okay or not, by our reckoning, it places the outcome in the context of the eternal. You know, if somebody comes to you with a challenge, use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. There's no good just sticking a plaster on. We need to address the real deep root of the sickness. And that, of course, is sin. Don't just tell someone, I'll pray for you. And I'm sure we've all done this. I certainly raised my hand. I've done this. and I've told people I'll pray for them. But we're missing an opportunity because if it's wrapped in truth, we need also to tell them that not only I will pray for this situation for you, but I'm going to pray that you come to know Jesus too. You see, do you see how wrapping the truth in the love makes a difference? And John, of course, uses that expression as we've just seen. So let's go into verse four. I rejoiced greatly. That I found of thy children walking in truth as we've received a commandment from the father. Well, again, we know that at least James and Jude were walking in the truth. It, it doesn't imply, by the way, in the Greek here that all of the children were walking in truth, but certainly the sum of the children. Uh, and certainly, again, this fits in the, the family uh, situation that we know with Mary and her children. Uh, notice also what we read. Uh, I beseech thee, lady. Uh, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. It's interesting if you just look at the way this is phrased, but that which we had from the beginning. It's a very personal, uh, the way that John presents this. And the clear implica implication is that both John and the elect lady were there at the beginning. Now, we know that uh, this command in a general sense is for all believers. And of course, in John's gospel, John 13, we're told a new commandment. I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you in John fifteen seventeen that you love one another. So it's a command for the whole church, for all believers. And we again have talked about this in recent studies. But this seems to be a very specific, personal, um, again, the statement I wrote, uh, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto you, but that which we had from the beginning. Now, it's an interesting statement, as I say, given these things, that John and Mary were there effectively from the beginning. We know from what we're told in the book of Acts that although often we presented this picture that it was just the 12 disciples that were met together, Actually, amongst the group, there were others. There were people like uh, Matthias, who later replaces Judas, that had been there from the beginning. And many of the women who had been there from the beginning. So certainly Mary would fit in that context, had, had been there from the beginning. She would have heard these words from Jesus' mouth. As Jesus speaks to the disciples, she would have been there to hear this command that we are to love one another. But then notice the second or the last part of the verse uh, again this come out, John, let me read the context again. Uh, but now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we 
had from the beginning that we love one another. Now, in a broad sense, of course, it does apply to the church that we are to love one another, but it seems to be personal. That it is John and this elect lady that are saying, he's saying to her, you know, remember that we have been given this command that we love one another also. This is John and Mary. Now, that scripture you've got there on the screen, you can see from John 19, is when Jesus is on the cross. And we read, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, that's of course John, he said unto his mother, woman, Behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. And of course, there has to be just that that nature of the relationship there, the son and a mother relationship. There has to be that love there. And it seems to be that John's saying, look, you know, you remember what we've been told. You know, this commandment that we are to to love is not a new commandment, but it was given to us by Jesus Uh, that we love one another. Why would John say this? Well, because John is writing this amidst the backdrop of all sorts of heresies coming in and people coming into the church, bringing false doctrine and effectively saying, you know, Mary, you and I, we've got to stick together. We've got to keep loving each other. Almost you can, I I can hear, whether you can or not, but that John's saying, you know, we need to pray for each other. We need to support each other as of course all believers should be doing. Verse six, and this is love, John says, that we walk after his commandments. You know, the love that we have is demonstrated by the fact that we keep his commandments. His commandments tell us that we should love one another. This is kind of uh, this complete circle. He says, this is the commandment that as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. Again, it seems to be very personal. How are we to love one another? Well, it's by keeping his commandments. And all believers, as I've said, have this same commandment. How do we know that we love God? By the love that we have for the brethren. If you love the brethren, your life and conduct, and that's key, will reflect the knowledge that what you do affects your brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, there is no such thing as a secret sin. Sometimes that expression is used. A secret sin, i.e. something that other people don't see. No, it affects all of us. You know, you may not think that something that you're doing is going to have an impact on the body, but scripture makes it clear that it does. We are all part of one body and one little part of the body that suffers can affect the whole body. You know, with the the girls we've been reading through in Genesis in our journey through the Bible this year, uh, we've been looking through the account of Joseph. And I've said before a number of times that Joseph is a great example of somebody who potentially had that opportunity to sin in secret. You know, Potiphar's out, all the servants and staff are out, and it's just Mrs. Potiphar and there's just Joseph. Uh, and as I said before, you know, often we have this impression, in fact, on the um, uh, the, the film that was made or the dramatization, the musical um, film of Joseph, uh, it's actually Joan Collins that plays the part of Potiphar's wife. And I guess there's that sometimes that impression of this, uh, dare I say, kind of a, a middle aged lady uh, that's trying to seduce this young man. Well, remember that in Egypt, the lifespan was typically at that time anything up to about 40 years old. Later on, Joseph makes the point that when his brothers, uh, when he reveals himself to his brothers, that Joseph says that I have become like a father to Pharaoh. That means Joseph was older than Pharaoh. Often we have this mindset, I think, that Joseph was younger uh, and that Pharaoh was older and more mature. No, it's the other way around. Pharaoh was very young. Joseph was the older one. In fact, there are, jo- Pharaoh's amazed when Jacob gets there and says, how old are you? And Jacob says, I'm 130 years old. He said, I've, I've not lived as long as my ancestors did. 
So Joseph is faced by this uh, potential um, temptation there to have this relationship with Mrs. Potiphar, who would have been no doubt a beautiful young Egyptian lady. It would have been a real temptation. But what does Joseph do? Well, he doesn't say, well, nobody's going to see it. It doesn't matter. No, he recognizes the danger and flees. Yeah, that's what we must do. He recognizes that there's a bigger implication because he states, how can I do this thing against God? He sees that there's a bigger picture. You may not understand it all, but he's learning the character of God through what he's going through. And, you know, if Joseph hadn't have done that, it could have been the end of the line down to the Messiah, because through Joseph and through the fact that he resisted, he's ended up, he ends up being put in prison. But because of that, he gets to interpret the dreams for the butler and the baker. Because of that, he's eventually brought out to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Because of that, he's made second in command in the land. Because of that, he ends up providing for the years of famine that were to come. And that means he provides for his family. It means that the whole family, Jacob and his brothers, all move down to Egypt and they're protected during that time, moved out of the environment where the Canaanites were as well for that period of time. You know, if Joseph hadn't have been faithful, probably what he would have done would have gone, gone unnoticed. I mean, there's an implication that, that Potiphar had some in, in understanding that his wife was not particularly uh, faithful. So probably Joseph could have just carried on. But if that had happened, none of the rest of that account would have come to pass. You see, Joseph's willingness to be obedient when nobody was looking has profound implications on all that happens next. And of course, because Judah and the brethren all moved down there, eventually from that line, from the line of Judah, the Messiah comes into the world. If they'd have stayed in Canaan, they may have all starved to death. So you see how those little things that nobody else sees are so, so important. Again, if you love the brethren, your life and your conduct, they're going to reflect that knowledge that what you do affects your brothers and sisters in Christ. I just really urge you to, to let that sink into your understanding that our conduct matters even when no one's watching. Well, then we get to this uh, statement that John makes. He says, verse 7, for many deceivers. Uh, just take note of how many times we have many in Scripture in regard to deceit and deception and so on. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. There's a spirit of antichrist at large in the world. Those that have come and deny who Jesus is, deny that Jesus was born again. Now, of course, we've already mentioned that uh, John is partly writing his first letter to counter the doctrine that was being spread abroad by the Gnostics. Uh, they were claiming that the Gnostics Oh, sorry, the Gnostics were claiming that Jesus wasn't really human, but some sort of phantom, um, and that he walked and didn't leave footprints and so on. These are the kind of the strange ideas they put forward. But of course, Mary, of all people, would know that that teaching was false. You know, the other side of the Gnostics were claiming that Jesus wasn't God. He was just an ordinary man whom the Spirit of Christ came upon. Of course, Mary knew that to be different. Mary knew the, the conception of Jesus, her firstborn, wasn't natural by any stretch of the imagination. That She was a virgin at the time and she finds herself pregnant. She's visited by an angel to tell us of this, tell her of this incredible, miraculous event. And she then carries 
this child and gives birth. And then she's greeted by these shepherds who come and acknowledge that he is the lamb, a lamb without spot and without blemish. That was their role. And then a few years later, the Magi come to acknowledge that he's the rightful king. You know, Mary was under no illusion. And of course, she would still remember that labor and that birth of her firstborn in the tower of the flock, as was prophesied by Micah on the outskirts of Bethlehem. None of these things would have been lost on Mary. She'd have remembered the whole thing. I mean, any mother that's given birth, I'm sure you remember it very, very well indeed. Uh, I've been there four times. I remember it and I didn't have any pain apart from when Joyce squeezed my hand real tight and that, that did hurt a bit, but, um, I'm not looking for sympathy. Um, but mothers understand and remember that experience and John's writing this. And again, if this is to Mary, it makes so much sense of why he's saying this, that there were deceivers gone out trying to claim that Jesus really wasn't God in the flesh or that he wasn't a real human being of all people. Mary knew the fallacy of those statements. You know, young people have this thing when they're texting each other they put ikr means i know right and it's almost like john is saying to mary you know there's deceivers gone out in the world that say that jesus isn't coming in the flesh that he wasn't born you know and it's like yeah how stupid is that because we know because mary you were there again that statement, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Uh, I was listening to Chuck Misler last night, his commentary on this, and he made the point that in the Greek, uh, it's emphatic. It's not just is come in the flesh, but it's an ongoing that Jesus Christ is come and still exists in the flesh. I don't know whether you've stopped to think about this. We often talk about the incredible sacrifice that Jesus gave up his position, the majesty, the glory of heaven. He who knew no sin became sin. But have you ever joined the dots together and realize that Jesus forever has taken on the form of a man? Jesus gave up the whatever way he existed before the foundation of the world. When he came into this world and took on that body that God had prepared for him, as we're told in scripture, forever Jesus will be a man. You know, right now there is a man seated at the right hand of the father in heaven a descendant of adam part of the the human race in that sense and you know jesus will be a man for eternity revelation 5 verses 4 to 7 when john the same john has that vision being caught up before the throne and john it we're told weeps sobs convulsively because no man was found worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals thereon john was looking for a man it had to be a man it had to be a descendant of adam the first Adam, of course, introduced sin into the human race. The second Adam was the one that brought redemption. And of course, as John is weeping, the, the angel who's standing next to him taps John on the shoulder and says, why are you crying? And John says, well, no one's found worthy. No man is found worthy. And then he's introduced to Jesus, the lamb as it had been slain. But this man, just an incredible thing. I'm not sure whether you appreciated that before, but that incredible um step down that jesus took to become man to lift us back up to where he was well then we're told look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought but that we receive a full reward so it's an important little verse just tucked away in these 13 verses of second john it is possible therefore that we can get to heaven and we can find that we've lost or forfeited our reward now, notice John is not speaking of salvation. He's speaking of reward. 
Reward is something that you earn, not something that you're given. Salvation is a gift of God. We're told by faith, you're, or by grace, you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, we're told. Very clearly, Paul tells us that. But this is speaking of reward. In fact, Jesus himself said back in Matthew 6, 21, that we're to lay up treasure in heaven. So we're to, by our works, by that which we do as Christians, we can earn treasure which will be laid up in heaven. Things that won't get corrupted by the, the things of this world, the moth eaten and rust destroyed and so on. So Jesus says that we can lay up treasure. In fact, all through the New Testament, we have these allusions to rewards and things that we can earn. Crowns particularly, we've talked many times. There's at least five crowns, at least, there may be more, but there's at least five crowns that are enumerated in scripture that we can earn for our faithful and obedient service to Jesus Christ doesn't affect our salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Your go-to verse to study this in a little more detail is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you're told of the different types of works that we can do. Gold, silver, precious stones speak of that which we do sowing to the Spirit for the Lord, laying up our treasure in heaven. When those are put through a fire, they're purified. And it speaks of us getting to heaven and receiving that reward. On the other hand, we've spoke, spoken of as wood, hay and stubble. Now, those three, if they go through fire, they're burnt up. And John, sorry, Paul in First Corinthians uh, chapter three makes the point that there will be those who get to heaven, who everything that they have lived and done on this earth will all be burnt up. It has no eternal value. They've lived for themselves. You know, if we live a carnal life. We don't lose our salvation. Again, that's a free gift, but we can lose our reward. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.11, speaks of having an abundant entrance into heaven. Well, the implication there is it's possible to forfeit that and not have an abundant entrance into heaven. And even for Mary. You see, John's saying here, again, I believe this is to Mary, as we've made the, the case already, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which you have wrought. Writing this in this context, it means that even Mary could lose reward, not salvation, but reward. Now, I don't think that's the case. I don't think John's suggesting that she's going to, but simply saying, beware, there's deceivers gone out into the world. They're going to try and bring in false doctrines. Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Don't give in to them. Don't lose the things that we have worked for because we will reap this wonderful reward. I just want to read to you um, some comments from Chuck Nisler. This is from his book, The Kingdom, Power and Glory. Now, this caused a bit of controversy when it came out. So I'm just going to throw this out there and I'm going to ask you to think and pray through these things as to whether you think they apply to you or not. But I think there's some interesting things here. <clears throat> Firstly, the statement at the top, you know, how we live our lives here will have eternal consequences. Now, whether you've thought about that or whether you believe that, Chuck says, what we do after we have been born again affects our role, position, place, and authority in the coming millennial kingdom. This kingdom is not heaven, but a literal, physical kingdom on earth where Jesus will reign for a thousand years. We acknowledge this kingdom. We pray, don't we? Uh, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So we acknowledge the kingdom. That's the kingdom we're praying about. But we don't know the criteria required to inherit it, often because we've not done our study. Chuck says, the truth that not only our rewards, but our place of responsibility in that kingdom is being determined now. Thus, there is an urgent need for a renewed recognition of our personal 
accountability. Interesting. Not just our rewards, but the responsibility, our place in that kingdom is being determined right now by the way that you're living, by the way that you treat your children or your spouse, by the way you are a witness in the workplace, by the vocabulary, the language you use, by the things that you allow yourself to watch, the things that you do with your time. These all have an impact. These are the difference between sowing to the flesh and sowing to the spirit. Chuck says we must learn to be partakers of Christ's life. These are called overcomers or faithful ones. He goes on and says overcoming means victory over hostile powers. Jesus is the real overcomer. The only way we become an overcomer is by yielding ourselves to him. Overcomers are not perfect. They are just ones who make the right choice to go God's way. Again, David is an example of that. All believers will enter the kingdom, but only overcomers will inherit the kingdom, Chuck says. And there's some scriptures there to go and research. I'll put the slides up on uh, line later on. You can go back to this and look. Overcomers, the faithful ones, will rule and reign there. The overtaken will simply dwell there. The deciding factor is how we live our lives here. And then just some quotes from some Fairly well-respected Christian scholars and commentators, Donald Gray Barnhouse said this, All will be in heaven, but the difference, speaking of course of believers, just to clarify that point, Donald Gray Barnhouse was speaking of those who are saved, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. He says, all will be in heaven, but the difference between those who have lived for Christ and those who have not will be eternal. That's quite profound. He says, are there any eternal consequences when a believer sins and doesn't repent? Absolutely. And that's from Charles Stanley. Owen Lutzer says this, rewards have no, has have more to do with levels of responsibility that will be given to us. Important positions of high responsibility over the whole universe. You see, we're so caught up in the, the time we live in now that we don't tend to give a lot of thought to eternity. But clearly there's some implications that we need to consider this. Tim Hay, I'm sure you're familiar in the author of the Left Behind series, said Christians will be assigned specific areas of service in proportion to what works they did on earth. And there are many scriptures that will support these kind of claims and these statements. But again, I'm not throwing this out there other than to say, think about this, pray through this and see how it applies to you. What is our goal? Well, all Christians will be with Christ in the kingdom. But only the overcomers and faithful ones will have the potential of co-reigning with him. Regeneration or new birth is only the prelude of an intimate relationship with God. You know, being born again is not the end of the story for us as Christians. It's the beginning of the journey. Yes, we get salvation and it's guaranteed. I'll come to more of that in a second. But uh, Chuck goes on and says, ruling and reigning with Christ is the final and ultimate goal. It's the prize of the high calling, Philippians 3.14, and to be sought after with everything we have. Chuck says also, being born again does not change our character. Now just consider this for a second. Even though we are now spiritually justified, this is those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Even though we are now spiritually justified, our character and our actions are not automatically changed. Christ has simply inputted his or sorry, imputed his righteousness and his life to us by means of a new spirit. 
Positionally, we have been set apart and made holy. But experientially, nothing has changed. Sorry, nothing at all has changed. Now we must begin the long road towards life transformation, which is a process called sanctification. So being born again is just the first step of salvation. Salvation, of course, I'm sure you're familiar. We've spoken it before. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's done. That was a completed on the cross. We are guaranteed eternal life because of that. But we are being saved from the power of sin. Okay, the penalty of sin has been paid for, but the power of sin still exerts itself on us. And we now have to learn to become overcomers. We're told to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans 12. So all these things work together to this work of sanctification as we become set apart. And then finally, uh, we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. It's often referred to as the three tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification and glorification. So once again, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And again, you see, hopefully that chart there clarifies. Again, that's from Chuck's book. So if you want to dig into that more and look at the subject in more depth, uh, certainly Chuck's book, uh, The Kingdom, Power and Glory is a good place to start. Um, but there's plenty in scripture that speak on these themes. And Jesus in many parables alluded to the things that we've just touched on there. So, okay. John says, whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. Fairly self-explanatory. We spoke a lot about that previously. Verse 10, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. Now, this has been a verse that's often been used to uh, not allow Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or any other cult into your home um, because it's believed that if we do that, it won't be good. Now, personally, I don't invite them into my home. I do keep them on the doorstep. I do open the door to them and I do speak to them. And it's a great opportunity to witness to them. But I wouldn't personally want to invite them into my home. And this would be one of the verses I would come to as a scriptural reason for that. Adam Clark, in his commentary, a uh, respected Bible commentator and scholar, said this, uh, the words mean, according to the Eastern use of them, have no religious connection with him, nor act towards him so as to induce others to believe you acknowledge him as a brother. Now, that's interesting, because often we would think of this verse in, reg in regard, as I said, to cults, to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Mormons, and so on. What Adam Clark is, is suggesting is it's not just those who follow after an ism, you know, uh, a cult, whatever. It's even those who claim to be followers of Christ, but have a different doctrine, not according to that which Jesus taught or the apostles declared. So even then, we need to be very careful that we don't acknowledge other people as brothers if they have a different doctrine. Don't enter, don't allow them to enter into your home, as it were, in that sense. Uh, David Guzik, in this comment, his commentary says, this may also be translated, do not receive him into the house. John may be referring most specifically uh, to not allowing these heretical teachers to come into the house where Christians met together. Now, notice, of course, that in the early uh, centuries when John was writing this, they didn't have church buildings they didn't have these ornate wonderful buildings that came later on they met from home to home so by not allowing somebody into your house it was not giving them the opportunity to come into the church 
and speak to the church and bring their heretical teachings in. And that seems to be the context uh, in which John is saying this that don't allow people with these doctrines to come into your uh, fellowship and have influence over the flock because it's so damaging and so dangerous if we do so. And then we have that warning as well about bidding them Godspeed. And the next verse says, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now, I'm sure you're aware that when we say goodbye, it's a contraction of what in England we used to say, God be with you. And it's just got shortened to goodbye. So goodbye is really our way of saying, may God be with you. Or let me bid you Godspeed. Pray that God will go with you. And what John is saying is don't do that. Don't bid them, uh, you know, you, don't pray your blessing upon them as they go for these individuals. Otherwise, in a sense, you're supporting and you're adding credence to the doctrine that they're trying to bring. Now, I'm not saying this morning you should not say goodbye to people, um, but it's helpful to understand the context uh, of those things. Now, Pastor Chuck Smith um, made this comment, um, Carrie Chapel Costa Mesa, some years ago. Uh, so when they leave, don't say, well, God bless you, brother, or God bless you. You don't want God to bless their pernicious ways. They are denying the truth of God, that Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh and that Jesus is coming in the flesh. They deny that. So don't bid them, God bless you. You might say, God bring you to the truth or God bring you out of darkness into the glorious light of his son, but not God bless you. It just made me smile. I mean, you may be able to employ some of those things next time uh, a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door or a Mormon or someone else. Uh, don't say, oh, well, God bless as they go. No, no, no. Uh, just, just put something in there, a little more substance. Again, go back to what we said earlier uh, about the truth uh, being wrapped in love and love being wrapped in truth and so on. So I'll go back to the previous verse one more time, because given the context of what we've already said about the recipient of this letter, notice again what is said. If there come any unto, uh, any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speak. Now, typically we take this to mean generally the church. But if this was a specific letter to Mary, then this is a specific instruction to Mary. If somebody comes to your house, don't bring them in. Don't welcome them. Why? Well, because imagine the repercussions that would have occurred if Mary had allowed one of these false teachers, one of these Gnostics or anyone else, into the fellowship or the assembly that would have potentially met in her house or that she'd have been a part of. Don't allow them in because the moment you do that, you're giving credence to them. You're giving support to them. Could you imagine the, the murmurs and the rumors that would have gone around the early church if Mary had been seen to go along with these things, whether she had endorsed it publicly or not, by allowing them into the house, the danger that could have presented. So John writes, I believe here, specifically to Mary, it does apply to us in a broader sense, but specifically to Mary, don't be fooled into letting these people in of course they they speak so well they have the right words but don't be deceived by them don't let them into your house because it could be so damaging to your witness to your ministry and what the lord is doing through that fellowship in your home and then finally the verse, last two verses having many things to write unto you notice the personal uh, i would not write with paper and ink but i trust to come unto you and speak face to face now, once again, as I said at the start, I think this is a really clear indication that this is a letter to an individual. And from the things we've already seen, uh, I can't see that it could be any other than Mary. The context fits so well. 
And notice as well uh, that John says, I want to come and speak face to face because then our joy may be full. Notice what we've already said about that joy, about the fellowship we have one with another. The last verse, uh, the children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. Well, we certainly know that applies in Mary's sense uh, that Mary had a sister um, and regard to the children. Well, we're not given details in scripture, but certainly it doesn't contradict anything that we've said so far. Uh, just in closing, um, that which you have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Where we started this morning, we mentioned about that joy being full through fellowship. And here again, John writing, I want to come to you. I want to see you face to face so we can have fellowship. Well, look, brothers and sisters this morning, don't we long to be able to meet together again face to face? And let's pray that Lord, the Lord would hasten that time that we get to meet face to face again soon. We can still meet, in a sense, face to face via these electronic means. It's not ideal. It's not what we want. Uh, but it is uh, a way that we can do it. Um, but of course, real fellowship is something that is so precious. Uh, and through fellowship, our joy can be full. Okay, let's uh, bow our hearts and just pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to review these things. Father, I pray you stir our hearts. Lord, help us to be just absolutely overwhelmed by your love, by your mercy, by your grace. And Lord, may it fill our hearts with peace. Father, may we also be aware that there is a lot of deception. And Father, be aware whom we associate with and allow to influence our thinking. Father, help help us to be discerning, particularly in these days. And Lord, we do long for that time when we can meet as a fellowship face to face, but even more when we can see you face to face. So Lord, keep our hearts and minds set upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen.